All right, so let's start with 1999. Um, as I was watching American Beauty, Fight Club, and Magnolia, it struck me that the three films were very similar in one way, which was that they were they did seem to be about a kind of post-apocalyptic hysteria of the modern male. And I, I kind of associate it with um, it being 1999 and on the cusp of the year 2000. I mean, if you, if you remember that, people were kind of wigging out that it was about to be the year 2000. It seems ordinary now, like, you know, nothing happened. Like, Y2K wasn't a big disaster. But at the time, leading up to 1997, 98, 99, leading up to the millennium, change of the millennium, people were wigging out. And I feel like those movies and some others that we'll talk about uh, of the year really captured that sort of hysteria really well. Almost like a midlife crisis for the entire country, and in, in, in addition to not just a, a hysteria, almost a, 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 it was hysteria mixed with a malaise, a, just right. a dissatisfaction, a feeling yes. of dissatisfaction, and just a disappointment. Like, okay, the 20th century is over now. So, been there, done that. Now what? You know, and and people feeling like that that the the century was ending uh, with a whimper. Yeah, sort of. And um, especially Fight Club and American Beauty are very similar in terms of their kind of smart-mouthed narrator who really is bored with life. They're bored with the American dream, bored with the bill of goods that they've been sold and what should make them happy. Like in Fight Club, he's going on and on about Ikea furniture. And, you know, he's just looking for something, anything to puncture the boredom and and uh, Kevin Spacey in American Beauty is kind of like that too. He's, you know, everything about his life is horrible in his mind. Mm-hmm. Even though he has the perfect life, he has the perfect American dream life. But it's all materialistic stuff that he's that he realizes is is empty and right. shallow, right? In the same way as Fight Club. Yeah, they're they're very thematically they're really similar. Except what separates them is that. I think Fight Club comes from the voice of a, a, a younger man, and American Beauty is very much um, a middle-aged man. That struck me a lot more mm-hmm. watching it this time. That's you know, I, I I think the first time I saw it, I the the sort of the snotty satire is the part that appealed to me the most. But watching it this time, it was a little unsettling how identifiable Lester Burnham's character is, yes. and. and not so much, uh, not so much back then, but more so now. Oh God, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I think when I first saw it, I was, who is this jerk? You know, he's such a pervert. Ew. And the wife was like, you know, kind of felt bad for her a little bit, even though she's obnoxious too. Mm-hmm. Um, you definitely in the film, you absolutely side with Ricky Fitz, who's the neighbor, and his poor, sad, awful father and mother. Uh, and the daughter, um, played by Thora Birch, whose career sort of was you know right alongside Scarlett Johansson and one became a superstar and one didn't but um Thora Birch is great and uh Mina Suvari as the little blonde cheerleader that that entices um Kevin Spacey's character I I, you know I felt a lot of sympathy for him this time a lot of I did too and I think you know they um originally as as originally written the screenplay had him actually sleeping with Mina Savari's character Mm. in the film they pull away from that and I think that was the smartest decision that that rescued the movie because it rescued that character if he had actually had sex with her that would have made him a monster Mm. but you know as an as a guy in in his 40s who sees beautiful high school women all the time I can understand that longing that he had 
that and, and the desire to want to sleep with them, but to actually do it is a horrible thing. It's one thing to yeah. think about it, but to actually do it. But the, and the way the way he avoided doing it was was actually kind of beautiful when he realized that she was a virgin, yeah. and and suddenly she became a human being and a, and, a, and sort of an innocent to him, and he didn't he didn't want to ruin that. Right. And it was it was kind of sweet actually. I thought so too, and I also felt like I think when I was a young woman seeing it at uh, that age. I guess I wasn't that young. I was pregnant. Had a, no, I had a one-year-old baby by then. But, um, you know, you just sort of see him. Like my daughter watching it just sees him as a gross perv, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I didn't see his lust for her as so much wanting to touch the forbidden flesh of a young girl, which is obvious, right? And I know a big, a big um, you know, it pulls you in for sure. It's, 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 it's a uh, compelling force. But there's another part of it, too, for him. He's yearning to be young. Mm-hmm. It isn't just that he wants that girl. He wants to be that guy. He wants to be a teenager again. He wants to work at a fast food joint. He wants to have a simpler life. He wants to remember what it was like to be free of worry and obligation and, and you know, the futility of life and the bummer of death. There must be some way out of here. There's a joker to the theme. There's too much confusion. I can't get What no the hell do you think you're doing? Uh-oh. Mom's mad. Bench presses. I'm going to wail on my pecs, and then I'm going to do my back. I, I see you're smoking pot now. I- I'm so glad. I think using illegal psychotropic substances is a very positive example to set for our daughter. You're one to talk, you bloodless, money-grubbing freak. Lester, you have such hostility in you. You mind? I'm trying to work out here. Unless you want to spot me. Lester, you will not get away with this. You can be sure of that. That's what... You think my job consists of basically masking my contempt for the assholes in charge and at least once a day retiring to the men's room so I can jerk off while I fantasize about a life that doesn't so closely resemble hell. Well, you obviously have no interest in saving yourself. Brad... For 14 years, I've been a whore for the advertising industry. The only way I could save myself now is if I start firebombing. Whatever. Management wants you gone by the end of the day. Well, just what sort of severance package is management prepared to offer me, considering the information I have about our editorial director buying pussy with company money, which I think would interest the IRS since it technically constitutes fraud. And I'm sure that some of our advertisers and rival publications might like to know about it as well, not to mention... Craig's wife. What do you want? One year's salary with benefits. That's not going to happen. Well, what do you say I throw in a little sexual harassment charge to boot? (laughs) Against who? Against you. Can you prove that you didn't offer to save my job if I let you blow me? You are one twisted fuck. Nope. I'm just an ordinary guy with nothing to lose. 
And he finds that in her, you know, it, it's it's not surprising that a lot of his fantasies about her aren't sexual. They're not explicit sexual images. They're they're dreamy, romantic. She's covered with roses, you know. And that's how a teenage boy would probably fantasize in a way, you know. Um, I just found it to be, I, I guess I had more compassion, which is maybe why Oscar voters felt more comfortable voting for that for Best Picture in such a year that had movies like Fight Club um, and Magnolia. Great, great movies that were really pushing the boundaries of cinema um, in in a way that, that hasn't been repeated, I don't think, since 19, 1999. But American Beauty is, to me, I know that some people have problems with it, but I, feel, I find it to be one of the best Best Picture winners because it's so daring um, and so unlike any movie that has won Best Picture since. And I don't know. I, I think because we're in our 40s now, heading for 50, suddenly it's it's easier to relate to him. Yeah, and I think it appealed probably to 40-year-olds back then. Right. And, that, and they were a huge, <laughs> a huge block of the voters. And now they're 60 or whatever. Right. <laughs> and they might be honest. It doesn't, doesn't strike with me the same way that it, that it uh, hits you to. I'm not a fan of the movie at all. I'm not going to argue. I don't want to argue about it. I, well, I don't, no, go I've ahead, already Ryan, kind of argued hear... about it a little bit on, on the side already. Oh. And I, I, I know that people are really fond of the movie. And, and it just, it's pointless for me to, to talk about the things that I don't like about it. because oh, it I'd seems, be curious it, to it, hear. It makes me... It, it makes me seem mean-spirited, but that's what I find about the movie. I find the movie to be mean-spirited. I find the humor to be really uh, cruel and bitter and ugly, and I don't find it to be witty. I don't find any of the lines to be really quotable. I find them to be just smarmy and smart-alecky, and it seems like a sitcom-style writing to me. And I, I can say that knowing that Alan Ball... Um, got his start in writing sitcoms, writing something like, you know, Grace Under Fire movie or, uh, uh, you know, half hour comedy series like that. And this was his first feature film. And he, he has always seemed to me to be more of a TV writer. His writing style seems to be, have that sarcastic tone to it that, that works well on television more than it does on the big screen. And, um, I thought that it, it, the targets that it made, the stereotypes of people were just too easy and facile. That, and I'd never knew those type of people in the suburbs. I mean, the suburbs are in America. Period is a is a is a really um, close-minded, narrow-minded, um, materialistic place. I was not living. I mean, I'm going to say again that people are bored of hearing about it. But I was in. I was uh, not living in America because I was so sick of it. I was living overseas. People that I was, people who I knew were all saying, "Well, let's all go see American Beauty because everyone wanted to see what American, what Hollywood was going to say about America." And everybody was real excited to see it. And people were seeing the movie before I did, and they were saying, "Oh, you've got to go see American Beauty. It really shows what America is all about." And so I went to see it, and I thought, "No, no, no. This is not. This is not the America that I know. I don't know anybody like that. I don't know neo Nazis." closet homosexuals living next door, you know, fantasy. I don't, I don't know people like that. I mean, it's just too extreme to me. It just seemed like it was just too exaggerated. Well, I think the exaggeration was, was part of what made it. I mean, it's like fight club is so exaggerated too. And Magnolia, my God, it's so exaggerated. So over the top. I just Mm -hmm. felt like they, they were, you know, splattering paint all over the room and these broad, 
you know, primary colors, and they were so bright. And yes, they didn't. It didn't really. I mean, my problem with American Beauty, my only problem with American Beauty, I think, is Annette Bening. I mean, she. I think her character. It's a combination of the way her character is written and her acting, which she's a little too over the top, I think, in that part. I, mean, she, mm-hmm. I don't think she found the humanity in that character. Like Meryl Streep playing that character, I think you would have understood where she was coming from. But but she played. But Bening played Caroline. Caroline is kind of a cartoon character just sort of this you know awful person and and i never felt any footing with her and so for me every time she comes on screen i the movie loses something and but when it's kevin spacey and when it's especially when it's the neighbor kid and his camera on thora birch and his high school stuff and the thing with the bag and all that it's to me that's all so beautiful i had always heard your entire life flashes in front of your eyes the second before you die First of all, that one second isn't a second at all. It stretches on forever, like an ocean of time. For me, it was lying on my back at Boy Scout camp, watching falling stars. and yellow leaves from the maple trees that lined our street. Or my grandmother's hands and the way her skin seemed like paper. First time I saw my cousin Tony's brand new Firebird. And Janie. I guess I could be pretty pissed off about what happened to me, but it's hard to stay mad when there's so much beauty in the world. Sometimes I feel like I'm seeing it all at once, and it's too much. My heart fills up like a balloon that's about to burst. And then I remember to relax. Oh, I, I, I blame the writing for 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 the Annette Bening part. I don't think Ball really had an affinity for that character. She's just kind of sort of the stock bad guy. But she has given one moment that worked, I thought, really well when she's when she's having a fight with her daughter, and she basically calls her daughter out for being a bitch because of all the things that her parents had given them, and and it was kind of a 
a kind of a moving, vulnerable moment, but it was like the only one in the entire film for that character. Yeah. I do think that Annette Benning is playing her role as if she knows she's in a comedy and everybody else is playing it straight. Yes. You know? Yes, and, absolutely. Uh, especially Chris Cooper and Allison Janney. They're really heart especially House and Janney is really heart-wrenching for yeah. performance, really really painful and hard to watch. And I do agree with you about Wes Bentley and Thor Birch and Mina Savari. When I saw those three, I thought, these three kids are going to be enormous, huge stars. And so it just was amazing when, they, when it that didn't, didn't, didn't turn out for them I know, at all. You know? I know, especially Because they him, were also I mean, amazing. Right. And we should also say that Allison Janney is currently playing a similar character on Masters of Sex on Showtime. She's playing um, a wife of a university muckety-muck who's a closet gay man and and who won't touch her or have sex with her or look at her even. And um, she's playing the same kind of tortured woman living in the, living that lie alongside her husband. It's a little more exaggerated in American Beauty because it's it's rendered the woman almost completely unresponsive to the world because of it. Mm-hmm. But um, but it's funny to see her all these years later playing a very similar. Um, I, I, I appreciate what the movie tried to do and what Alan Ball, even I appreciate what he was trying to do, trying to reveal and talk about uh, bigotry in, in, in America in ways that had not been addressed in movies before. But it was almost seems to me as if it's bigotry for dummies. I mean, let's just show the most coarse and gross bigots possible without any shade of gray at all. Let's just make them really, just really ugly, repulsive people like Chris Cooper and even Annette Bening and, you know, the real estate king. And those people were just extreme stereotypes to me that I just had never encountered in real life. Mm-hmm. And I would thought it would have been more effective if they had had a little more shading to them Yeah, for me. I understand I that. Kinda, I pretty much agree with you. I think I'm, I'm kind of in the middle between your feelings about it and, and Sasha's a little bit more positive feelings about it. I liked it a lot at the time, actually, um, and was surprised to find out that there are pockets of hate towards that movie. But in watching it again, I wasn't expecting very much. But um, all of the things you say about it, the the sort of the crassness of it, is still not very appealing to me. It's all about it's all about Kevin Spacey's character to me. That, that made one last thing, and the Conrad Hall's cinematography is awesome too. Mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, visually and even directorially, it's really, really, really well put together. It's really meticulous. But one other thing that does bother me about it, it's a little bit self-satisfied. It is all these big city millionaires looking at the suburbs and saying, "Oh, look how ridiculous they are in the suburbs, aren't they? Just shameful the way they act." And it's the same sort of thing that you saw on TV shows like Married with Children or even Seinfeld or Roseanne, where, you know, you, you, you take the cross-section of America and you just kind of show how... How ridiculously petty they are! Well, I and see are, that are, point aren't of view, we all bigger no. than that? We're also I, bigger you know, than that because we're all these big city millionaires. It didn't ring that way to me when a movie came out. Mm-hmm. It really resonated with all, cl- you know, especially the upper class more so than I don't think that they were condescending. First of all, it's not representative of the middle class. It's it's an upper middle class neighborhood. They're very wealthy. Um, fancy wealthy, you know what I mean? Compared mm-hmm. to, they're not middle class, they're not poor, they're not condescending to poor people, poor, ignorant, dumb slobs. They're saying, look at the hate that is behind these pretty red roses. Look at the hate. And I totally saw that. I see that now. I see it living in the, the fucking Republicans, you see it. Mm-hmm. It exists today. It is not a lie. Um, but, but we won't get into an argument, but let me just say one thing mm-hmm. about it in terms of Oscar. Um, American Beauty is one of those movies that came along that just won everything. There wasn't even a debate. It, it was like, an, an, it, the surprising thing about it was, in a year with so many great movies, 
um, it just flew through and it won everything. It was like, yes, 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 yes. It would be like how 12 Years a Slave is probably going to be this year, maybe. The only movie that gave it a tiny bit of, of uh, challenge, and we can talk about that next if you want to see Insider, Michael Mann's, but it didn't make enough money to, to top American Beauty. Um, and we should also say that this was the year that they started the fake rivalry between Annette Bening and, and Hilary Swank because Annette Bening was the favorite to win Best Actress for American Beauty. But look, you, you want to talk about characters like Ability. Um, she lost to uh, Hilary Swank, who gave obviously the best performance of the year in a tiny movie. It needed hardcore advocacy for her to win. She did win, and a lot of that's to do with the fact that Annette Bening's character wasn't as likable. Mm-hmm. I think you're right about that. In spite of the fact that people were really saying that it wouldn't it be great, wouldn't it be so sweet to see Annette Bening win an Oscar on the same yes. night that Warren Beatty wins his um, Lifetime Achievement Oscar or, and or she his was pregnant. Award. She was and she pregnant. was pregnant, yeah. exactly. Right. And so, so that's people true. were thinking that that was, was gonna, really going to help push her over the top. But they were underestimating, I think you're right, just how... Well, for one thing, Hillary Swank's performance in Boys Don't Cry is one of the performances of the ages. I mean, oh, you know, sure. one of the great performances in Hollywood history, I think. Absolutely. It's, it Especially was a- since nobody knew who she was. She came out of nowhere and and just delivered this amazing, unexpected performance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I started blogging. I started Oscar Watch in 1999. I can't remember if I was writing at the time, full-fledged website this year, um, but I do recall predicting Hillary Swank would win, and I recall advocating for Hillary Swank to win, and so it was one of those great nights where, like, the deserving person actually wins. It was shocking. Um, mm. But even now, people say anytime Annette Bening and, and Hillary Swank are headed for the Oscars, they still bring it up, like this big rivalry thing, uh, when, when Hillary Swank was up for... Um, I don't think she did. Did she win for Million Dollar Baby the same time Annette Bening was up for something? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's that's the uh, uncanny thing about it is they seem to be having great movies come out the same year, time after time. <laughs> I forget what it was. I think uh, Being Julia came out the same the, the year that uh, oh, uh, Annette Benning was in Being Julia, and she was touted as as a potential Oscar winner for that. Uh, but that was Million Dollar Baby's year, two thousand four. Um, well, so should we move on to The Insider, which is also a really great movie of 1999? I don't know how you guys feel about it, but for me, it's one of those movies I return to again and again and just watch it. And I always mm-hmm. have it on in the background because I love the movement of it. I love how long it takes to finish. I love Al Pacino's speeches all throughout, the best speeches. I love Russell Crowe's performance. I love the message of the movie. I love the supporting players. I can't. I, I, I can't find any flaws with that movie. Do you guys agree? It's my favorite movie of the year. I made a list on the site when people were challenging me about, you know, if you don't like American Beauty, what did you? Because I, I made the mistake of putting the headline for the Oscar podcast preview. I said 1999, the year American Beauty beat 12 better movies. Oh right. That's right. kind of a, that that headline kind of irritated people, and so people wanted to know what those 12 or 15 other movies were, and so it was easy for easy for me to list them. Mm. And The Insider was number one. It's my favorite movie of 1999. Yeah. I like Michael Mann anyway. I think he's as, as far as stylistically, he's subtle. You know, you don't. He's not. He's not in your face with his uh, directorial flourishes and everything like that. But he is absolutely, absolutely sure of where he wants to have his camera and his camera movements. Mm. And like you talk, you're talking about the pacing and the way he holds shots and everything. Mm. Uh, he has a style all of his own that is unmistakable and really, really effective. And really, um, the culmination of his. Uh, 
previous um, experiments and everything, I think, all yeah. came together for The Insider. Nobody gets the short shrift in that movie. Nobody. And he takes his time. I mean, the thing about The Insider is one of those movies, it's like Cloud Atlas. I mean, you really have to watch it all the way through to really get why it's so good. If you start watching it an hour in and you're bored, you're never going to know why The Insider is a good movie. You know, because mm-hmm. it, it is about two people, um, a source and a journalist. And it's about journalism. It's about modern journalism. It's about journalistic ethics. It's about... Um, you know, being faithful to your source who's about to give you some incredible information. It's also about when 60 Minutes buckled under the pressure of the tobacco lobby to quiet um, Jeffrey, uh, what's his name, Jeffrey? Uh, Jeffrey Wigand. Wigand. Jeffrey Wigand's story. And, you know, that's a big deal. That's a big deal that that happened on 60 Minutes. It's even a bigger deal that now that kind of stuff happens all the time. And especially it's since we've been watching it um, right before the 60 Minutes dropped the ball again with the Benghazi interview last uh, weekend. I mean, it's uh, the the movie in some ways was ahead of its time. It was of its time, but ahead of its time because if anything, the situation has gotten worse. And it's just it's so depressing to see 60 Minutes, which is one of the few bastions of real journalism on TV, totally selling out to the most evil people on the planet. Mm. And that's, that's, that's sort of what gives the movie its core, but also like you were saying, the, the counterpoint between the journalist and his source, that's when the movie really starts to cook um, is when, when those two characters start to be humanized and their relationship develops. And one guy sort of seems like he's using another guy for his own purposes, but he's not really being evil about it. And it just becomes layered and, and, complex and it's complex because for one thing there's the parallel thing going on because it's about journalistic ethics and it's also about um jeffrey wiggins um personal ethics because he has signed a non-disclosure agreement about things he wasn't supposed to reveal and they kind of he 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 didn't and he was really putting his family and his entire career and everything in jeopardy probably even uh, in legal jeopardy to do that and 60 minutes um hung him out to dry after he decided to go ahead and do the right thing 60 minutes backed off and didn't do the right thing and so you have uh, the the contrast between the journalistic ethics and morality and the personal ethics and morality. Yeah. That's the exact moment that I was thinking of when the movie starts to get really good is when, when he's watching on TV and he realizes that, that the, when um, Al Pacino has to call him and tell him that basically they're not going to run the interview after he's already yeah. pretty much sacrificed his entire life to make it happen and, and they're not even going to run it. Mm-hmm. Has one of the best endings of any movie ever when Al Pacino just walks out the door. <laughs> it's so great. He believes in 60 Minutes, but it feels like he's the last great reporter. Well, since when has the uh, paragon of investigative journalism allowed lawyers to determine the news content on 60 Minutes? It's an alternate version. So what if we have an alternate version? And I don't think her being cautious is so damned unreasonable. So now, if you will excuse me, gentlemen, Mr. Rather's been complaining about his chair again. Before you go, I discovered this. SEC filing for the sale of CBS Corporation to Westinghouse Corporation. What? Yeah, I heard rumors. Not a rumor, it's a sale. If Tish can unload CBS for $81 a share to Westinghouse and then is suddenly threatened with a multi-billion dollar lawsuit from Brown and Williamson, that could screw up the sale, could it not? 
And what are you implying? I'm not implying. I'm quoting. Uh, more vested interests. Persons who will profit from this merger. Ms. Helen Caparelli, general counsel of CBS News, $3.9 million. Mr. Eric Cluster, president of CBS News, $1.4 million. Are you suggesting that she and Eric are influenced by money? No, no, of course they're not influenced by money. They work for free. And you are a volunteer executive producer. CBS does not do that. And you're questioning our journalistic integrity. No, I'm questioning your hearing. You hear reasonable and tortious interference. I hear potential Brown and Williamson lawsuit jeopardizing the sale of CBS to Westinghouse. I hear shut the segment down, cut Wigand loose, obey orders, and fuck off. That's what I hear. You're exaggerating. I am? You pay me to go get guys like Wigand, to draw him out, to get him to trust us, to get him to go on television. I do. I deliver him. He sits, he talks, he violates his own fucking confidentiality agreement. And he's only the key witness in the biggest public health reform issue, maybe the biggest, most expensive corporate malfeasance case in U.S. history. And Jeffrey Wigand, who's out on the limb, does he go on television and tell the truth? Yes. Is it newsworthy? Yes. Are we going to air it? Of course not. Why? Because he's not telling the truth. No, because he is telling the truth. That's why we're not going to air it. And the more truth he tells, the worse it gets. You are a fanatic, an anarchist, you know that? If we can't have a whole show, then I want half a show rather than no show. But oh no, not you. You won't be satisfied unless you're putting the company at risk. What are you? Are you a businessman or are you a newsman? Because that happens to be what Mike and I and some other people around here do for a living. Lowell. Put the corporation at risk? Give me a fucking break. Lowell. These people are putting our whole reason for doing what we do on the line. Lowell. What? I'm with Donald. And that guy that he plays, um, please help me out with his name. Mike He's... Wallace? No. No. No, um, no, 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 I'm sorry. sorry, sorry. Mike Wallace um, is yeah, great, um, though, too. <laughs> Mike? Yeah. <laughs> Mike? Um, Christopher uh, Plummer, yeah. Yeah, um, no. Uh, he plays Lowell Bergman. Lowell Bergman yeah. goes on to work for Frontline and continuing to do great journalism and kind of sticking by his his integrity and his word. But God, you gotta love it that he has so much faith in in the institution of journalism and in sixty minutes, and he has to walk out of that job. That touches a little bit on one of my two nitpicks with the movie. Um, it's um, it. I don't entirely trust the story because Michael Mann was, was buddies with Lowell Bergman, and that sort of colors the whole thing. I mean, and he's he's obviously the hero, the not not the only hero, but he 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 he's definitely the he comes off looking the best, and I'm a little suspect about that. I would like if I would like to have seen a few more uh, wrinkles, a little more shading in the character. Yeah, I feel like his flaws are that he. He'll do anything to get the source, and he does mislead Jeffrey Wigand a little bit. And um, it sort of comes off at times that he really just cares about the and This is how journalists are. I mean, if you're ever interviewed by one, mm-hmm. if you've ever been interviewed by one who treats you like a buddy and then totally kills you in the, <laughs> in the press, you know what that's like. I mean, they, they do value the story over their personal relationships. I felt like... I never really know in this movie if he really cares about Jeffrey Wigand. I, and you never know that. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about it for me. I mean, I can see where you're coming from. But for me, I feel like his allegiance was to the truth in the story. And 
I don't think there are any gray areas with that. You know, the gray areas come out with his relationship with Jeffrey Wigand. I bet you if you asked Jeffrey Wigand about the story, he'd say, yeah, that guy totally fucked me. Mm -hmm. You know? I, I wish they'd emphasized that a little bit more. They, they, they made him look a little too noble for me. It, it took to be completely believable. And knowing that Van and Bergman were friends just kind of made that even stronger. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't know that. <laughs> But, uh, my my other issue with it, and I'm on a tiny, sad, lonely little island here with this, I'm going to realize this and I'll probably get hate mail for it, is that I really don't like uh, Russell Crowe in it that much. Um, he, every mannerism, every gesture, every inflection of his voice feels like acting to me. And it, it, it just, it, it's, it's a good performance, but it's not a, a great one. I, I can always see him. I, it's, I feel like I can see the craft when I'm watching him. And I prefer mm -hmm. performances that... that where the person sort of disappears and I don't, I'm not conscious of them acting. Oh, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But boy, I'm sorry to say that I couldn't disagree more. I, I know. I know. You're, I and you're not alone. Most people disagree with me. So much. I love him as Jeffrey Wigand. It's my favorite performance of his. I think he's a great actor, especially back then. Don't think he deserved to win for Gladiator. Should have won for this or for um, A Beautiful Mind. But as Jeffrey Wigand, the little tiny subtle things he does, I mean, the sad loneliness in his eyes, the way he tries to be such a good father and a good husband, and, he, you know, the humiliation on his face when he keeps getting demoted, the look of frustration on his face as he tries. This is one of the reasons I like his performance so much is because Russell Crowe's not somebody who holds back his fury, right? He's mm -hmm. a guy who, lets, who unleashes his fury in, in, in a lot of movies. But here, he really has to hold it in. And that, I think, is where, for me, where the power of his performance lies. You know what we do or do not need to know. Since when have you become a media expert? What do you want to do, low look at my ass, too? Oh, my God. Not even on this anymore. What do you care? Jeff. Wake the fuck up. Everybody is on the line here. If they catch you in a lie, they can paint everything with that brush. Do you understand? Everything you say. I told the truth. Everything you say. And I can't defend you, man, with one hand tied behind my back because you keep from me what they can discover. And they will discover everything. Believe me. I was young. I was young. Confused. We didn't handle it the right way. She sued you for back payments of child support? She did not sue me. We had a dispute over money. I settled it. She dropped the complaint. Any other questions? Yes. Did you lie about being on the American judo team in the Olympics? What? Some public relations guy got hold of a tape of an interview where you're saying you were on the American judo team in the Olympics. What kind of shit is this? I, I was... I was not on the team. I sparred with the Olympic team. Okay. All right. ABC Telemarketing uh, Company? ABC? ABC Telemarketing Company. The can open. The $39.95 can open. I canceled payment. It was junk. You ever bounce a check, Lowell? You ever look at another woman's tits? You ever cheat a little on your taxes? Whose life, if you look at it under a microscope, doesn't have any flaws? Oh, that's the whole point, Jeffrey. That's the whole point. Anyone's, everyone's. They are going to look under every rock. Dig up every flaw, every mistake you've ever made. They are going to distort and exaggerate everything you've ever done, man. Don't you understand? What does this have to do with my testimony? That's not what the does truth. it have to do with my testimony? I no, told the truth. It's, it's not about telling the truth and proof. It's not the fucking point whether you told the truth or not. Hello? I told the truth. I told the truth.
I gotta teach class. I gotta go. I gotta teach class. And I gotta refute every fucking accusation made in this report before the Wall Street Journal runs. I am trying to protect you, man. Well, I hope to improve your batting average. I would agree with that. I like his vulnerability in the film, which he would show again a little bit later in A Beautiful Mind, which, where I also don't like him. But um, that was it was refreshing to see that, to see this this L.A. confidential tough guy yeah. uh, being vulnerable like that. I just, I didn't, I, I was always aware that I was watching the tough guy being vulnerable rather than watching Jeffrey Wigand. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, if you watch him in uh, L.A. Confidential and then you watch him in this, you can see the kind of the the invisible lines of his performance in LA Confidential and then and then you do see he is trying to well he has to do an accent, you know, he gained weight and he dyed his hair. He's trying to do character acting. Whereas in LA Confidential he really could just be himself. Right. My favorite performance of his, since I've just slagged on him, um, is actually State of Play from 2009. And it was for a similar reason to why the, the parts that he's good in, in what should we call it, in, in The Insider. It's because it was a different character for him. He seemed, he seemed really relaxed and he was actually kind of funny, which he's not a guy who's known for his sense of humor. And it was, it was neat to see him that way. And I thought that was one of his, his most... Uh, his strongest performance because it didn't it didn't seem like a put on it seemed natural. I hadn't thought of that. That's a, I don't the movie's not great, but he is great in it. He, right. Another couple of movies that he's uh, really relaxed and funny in are Three Ten to Yuma and even Body of Lies. Oh his, yeah, his, he's just hilarious in Body of Lies. Yeah, he's a really good actor. I'm sad mm-hmm. to see that his career has kind of taken a dive uh, now. Yeah, but maybe he, maybe we'll see it be resurrected next year with Noah, huh? Maybe. <laughs> I have a, um, uh, I have, uh, I will have a problem finding, selecting clips for this movie because it, there are several scenes that I love so much. I'm always posting them on on you know various social networks and returning to them to watch over and over again because they're so great. I mean, the the scene where Al Pacino really gives it to to um, Christopher Plummer. Um, I think there are two of them, and one is really spectacular, and you know he does he does talk about uh, ethics, and then the scene in the courtroom with um, you know <laughs> wipe that smirk off your face, that's a great scene, you know. So and then the scene where where uh, Gina Gershon calls Mike Wallace Mike, and he he gets offended, Mike. <laughs> so those three scenes I'm going to have to put in because I love all three of them, but I know it's a time thing, so I probably won't be able to. Put they're them. they're great scenes, but you know what it is about trying to find scenes from a movie like The Insider is it's just such a visual movie, not only visual. Um, with in, in the sense of cinematography, but visual in the sense of watching watching expressions um, go, go across people's faces, the actors' faces, and you don't get that with just an audio clip, you know. So that's the hard part: is finding an audio clip that can convey all that. That's, that you that what you see when you see it on screen. Yeah, you see it. absolutely. Um, fantastic film, though. Beautiful music and mood. I just love how it takes its time, you know. So many movies don't anymore, and I shudder to think if it was released today, what the you know what the bloggerati would do with it. If they would just be like, "Ah, oh, structure was all over the place," you know, and they needed to cut out forty-five minutes. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but I just love how it, you know, how it just relaxes into itself. I love that about it. I, those kind of movies, like No Country for Old Men and The Insider and The Godfather. They're not going to rush. You know from the first hour, hour that this movie is not going anywhere. So just sit back and enjoy it because it's going to tell you a great story. And it gets better as it goes along. Yeah. 
And it is 157 minutes long. I, I, I have forgotten the running time, but it's like two and a half hours long. So I'm sure for some people, you start to get a little bit squirming in their seats, but you need that, I think. And, and that's another thing about finding audio clips is there is a Michael Mann knows how to use, his, use um, pauses and silence in his movie so well to give you time to consider what you've seen, to think about what you're watching. Yeah. Ah, oh, he was a great director. Again, somebody who doesn't work much anymore. Um, he's not dead, is he? No, no, no. Uh, he um, he's, has ongoing projects, I think. Okay. His last, um, he's got something going on TV, but his last theatrical feature was the uh, the gangster picture with Johnny Depp, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Um, Public Enemies. Yeah. Which uh-huh. kind of got, forget it, just sort of, sort of sidelined mm-hmm. and barely opened, right? Um, all right, so should we move on to uh, what we want to move on to next, Fight Club or Magnolia? Shall we talk about David Fincher's fantastic film, Fight Club? Let's do that. All right. Um, are we all three fans of the movie? Oh, my gosh, yes. It's like uh, I think I have it listed as my number two, second or third favorite film of the year. And it's just a, one of those things is you, looking back, you can't understand why why the Academy or why, why uh, – the critics award why the critics didn't see it either how great it was yeah i don't understand that i don't understand how um how you get the green mile and the sixth sense i mean we could talk about that if we want we all know what it's about i mean that movie mm-hmm. once you know the ending it kind of renders it pointless to watch it but and he, the cider house rules and the, oh cider, God, house. the cider house rules are you kidding me well that is your typical mm-hmm. we we haven't talked what mm-hmm. we haven't talked about um at all on the podcast is the reign of Miramax so much. We've talked about it after, I think it's the crying game. Um, they pretty much had a movie in best picture almost every year following that. And there was always the Miramax slot and which was interesting because they were considered an independent and they weren't one of the big studios. And he kind of broke the mold with that Harvey Weinstein and Bob Weinstein with the, with Miramax before it got taken over. Um, but you know, every year you can see that they slide one movie in, you know, and that year it was Cider House Rules. I rewatched it. You know, it's a sweet movie, just saving Mr. Banks type of thing, you know, just very sentimental and sweet. You care about the characters. They're sad. It's very, you know, touching and safe. And, you know, you could sit anybody down in front of it. It doesn't require any sort of energy to understand it. You can just let it wash over you, right? Um Sixth Sense is kind of like, that was M. Night Shyamalan's sort of box office phenomenon. It was in because it made a shitload of money, and nobody could believe it or understand why. And uh, The Green Mile, uh, that year, it was a head-scratcher. It was a head-scratcher because people felt like the independents were making such a big show. And then at the very last minute, if you, wa- if you look at the precursors, you won't see any evidence or hardly any of The Green Mile and The Sixth Sense. But at the very last minute, the Academy went full-on commercial in their best pictures and they ignored some of the best pictures um, of all time like Magnolia like Fight Club which really should have been in the best picture race I think Fight Club I I touched on it before when we were comparing it to American Beauty I think uh, Fight Club appeals to a younger audience I mean I think I was 30 when I saw it and that's sort of the outside edge of of what that movie's aimed at I think It's, Mm -hmm. um, it's it's an angry brutal um sarcastic sometimes ugly film and i think that puts people off and i'm saying that as all being compliments i don't mean that negatively but i think yeah. that i think that 
that overwhelms people and puts them off of it where they're where the cider house rules is in the green mile are more, are more comfortable yeah and when we say people we mean the older oscar voters which are who yes. are the majority of the oscar voters who are over the age of 70 and many of them in their 80s and 90s a movie like uh, fight club and being john malkovich is just going to baffle them they're going to just going to be they're not going to be able to follow it really you know they can't even follow with the the, the plot line because the narrative structure is so un, un, unusual. Right. But what a great year. I mean, we talk mm. about the 70s a lot. We go on and on about that. But but you could argue that 1999 was a year that was, you know, in keeping with the 1970s in terms of um, films. And, and I know that the point is being made that the Oscars recognized those kind of movies in the 70s, and that's what made it different. And that they didn't particularly in 1999. Those movies were being made, and they're appreciated to this day but the Academy couldn't quite embrace them. And um, they've had sort of a love-hate relationship with, with David Fincher. I don't think that they quite know what to do with a movie like Fight Club, which doesn't hold anything back and is hard to watch. It's brutal. It, it almost hurts to watch it. Um, and it's weird and surreal and dark and beautiful and um, sexy. And, yeah, and very, very bleak. You're gonna start a fight, and you're gonna lose. Hey, watch out, jackass, come on! Now this is not as easy as it sounds. Most people, normal people, do just about anything to avoid a fight. Excuse me. with your unpresentable appearance you're up for a review i am jack's complete lack of surprise what let's pretend you're the department of transportation okay someone informs you that this company installs front seat mounting brackets that never pass collision tests brake linings that fail after a thousand miles and fuel injectors that explode and burn people alive what then? Are you threatening me? No. Get the fuck out of here. You're fired. I have a better solution. You keep me on the payroll as an outside consultant. And in exchange for my salary, my job will be never to tell people these things that I know. I don't even have to come into the office. I can do this job from home. Who, who the fuck do you think you are, you crazy little shit? Security? I am Jack's smirking revenge. Oh. Oh. What the hell are you doing? 
Why would you do that? Oh my god. No! Please stop! What are you doing? Oh god, no, please! No! For some reason, I thought of my first fight with Tyler. No! man took for granted. Something horrible had been growing. Now look, just give me the paychecks like I asked, and you won't ever see me again. And right then, at our most excellent moment together. Oh, thank God. Please don't hit me again. Telephone, computer, fax machine, 52 weekly paychecks, and 48 airline flight coupons. We now had corporate sponsorship. This is how Tyler and I were able to have Fight Club every night of the week. Now, nobody was the center of Fight Club except the two men fighting. The leader walked through the crowd, out in the darkness. Tyler was now involved in a class action lawsuit with the Pressman Hotel over the urine content of their soup. Jack's wasted life. I said this about the Oscars before and about the difference between the 70s and now, or a year like 1999. In the 70s, if you look at the top 10 or 15 greatest movies of, of any of the years, of 1974, or 1976, or 72, if you look at the top 10 or 15 films, they're all fantastic. They're all great movies. In 1999, you also have a really top-heavy year, but scattered in among those movies, you also have four or five safe options. And you didn't have the safe options in the 1970s. You didn't really have a safe... I think if you had had a King's Speech in 1972, I hate to think what would have happened, a King's Speech against the Godfather. You know, I just shudder to think what might have happened. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because I think whenever the Academy can find a safe option, they will run to that option. But if they don't have any safe options, they have to choose the best um, dangerous option. The, yeah. the best bad, you know, the best bad idea that we have, or whatever, you know. Uh, they would have had to hate uh, uh, American Beauty not to award it that year because it really was like an av- I mean, it won everything, so mm. it was a really big deal. And if um, they were inclined toward picking another movie, they might have done that, but they really didn't have much room, wiggle room there. I mean, it was it was considered it was like one of those Slumdog Millionaire kind of sweeps of the precursors. Yeah, I will agree, and I think that when we look at the, the as great as the year is, we named the top ten or fifteen or twenty movies of of nineteen ninety nine when we were thinking about what we wanted to cover this year, and a lot of them are pretty pretty out there. The Matrix right. and Three Kings and Magnolia and the Straight Story was really offbeat and strange. Um, Election. Fight Club, all of those movies, they just don't really seem like Best Picture material, as great as they are. They're not the kind of thing that ever wins Best Picture. They have never won and, and may never will. So the kind of movies whose brilliance are sort of revealed over time, and you, know, mm-hmm. you wouldn't necessarily expect the Oscars to pick up on it in the moment. I'm not saying that American Beauty wasn't also 
dangerous and went places that no movie new movie had ever gone before because as you say sasha it did do that but it also had a handle it had a handle that people could grab onto and hold on for the ride right. you know something familiar about it yeah, something and the to end laugh is, about, you know. is redemptive there's redemption in the end there's mm-hmm. there's yeah. a sweetness to the way that it co- concludes when he mm-hmm. mentions his wife and how much he loved her and how much beauty there is in the world i mean lester pays for his crime he dies right yeah. but his spirit is still redeemed and maybe that in the end gives you hope. Whereas a movie like fight club, forget it. I mean, <laughs> there's no redemption there. That's just dark, 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 you know, nope. it ends with them blowing the place up and that's the end, yeah. which is just beautiful because that's, you know, that's, um, one of the few movies that, that really hit me where I lived and my, my state of mind and just my, my feeling about the world and the rampant consumerism and just the emptiness and the horror of things. That's how I really felt at that time. And so that movie just really tapped into that. Mm. And it didn't pull any punches, no pun intended. And it didn't, it didn't leave you an easy out. It didn't tell you that everything was going to be okay at the end. Donnie, you're a, nihil- you're a nihilist. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It's true, though, that, um, you know, for me, Fight Club, you know, being a total Fincher fanatic, um, I don't put Fight Club as one of my favorite of his because I feel like it's, while it's it's absolutely brilliant, genius work of directing, it feels like the writer's voice, the the novelist Mm -hmm. Chuck, last name. Can't pronounce his last name and wouldn't care to. I can't pronounce it either. Probably a check or something. Okay, I feel like the movie is so much him and his voice and his his. Uh, it's all a lot of its voiceover, and it's his view of the world. You know, I feel like it's less Fincher and more him. Um, and if you're down with that, if you like his writing, and a lot of people do, uh, and he's a great writer, uh, I think you're gonna absolutely love Fight Club. You can still watch it and enjoy it without that because it absolutely makes sense. Um, but. But for me, it's very much that writer's... I can't get his voice out of my... I can't separate his voice from the movie when I'm watching it. Like, it's all I hear is his. And part of it is those lines of dialogue are so incredible that are voiceovered by um, Edward Norton, who's great. I think he's, he's fantastic in the part. I mean, uh, over time, Brad Pitt has become the more standout kind of icon of Fight Club. You don't think about Fight Club and think about Edward Norton. You think about Brad Pitt as Tyler Durden and how many, you know, Twitter handles are called Tyler Durden, how many commenters use Tyler Durden as their avatar name. And I mean, he became, he seeped into the consciousness and he is a cinematic icon, that character. I think for me too, since I wasn't that familiar, I hadn't really identified what I could, what I could call Fincher's style yet at that time from the movies that I had seen of his. I thought that he did a really fantastic job of of adapting a style that matched uh, the writer's, the author's prose, you know, the the kind of frenetic, strange, um, jarring uh, directing style. Uh, It was it's different from anything Fincher has ever done before. And I think that he did a really fine job of of, uh, replicating what you see on the page and the rhythms of the of the words. He did that visually. Yeah. And to me, Hitchcock, I mean, Hitchcock, <laughs> to me, Fincher is is similar to Hitchcock in that he was making these incredible movies. And yet, just like Vertigo was nominated for sound and, and art direction, I think, um, Fight Club was only nominated for like sound editing or something, not for cinematography, mm. not for uh, adapted screenplay, which it should have been, you know, um, not for editing. Oh, my gosh. Editing. editing. 
I mean, my God. And, and Brad Pitt should have been nominated for it, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they totally ignored him completely. And that is also... I, I don't think they even ignored Magnolia that much, you know? It's just that Fincher was such an outsider and still is an outsider, you know? He doesn't play the game, either. No, he doesn't. He, he, he spits in the face of the game, even, you know? I think Fight Club might have been a movie like The Matrix that, that when, it came, when it came to theaters, the studios either didn't know how to sell it or people didn't know how to understand the way that they, they were being marketed. And so people didn't show up to see them in the theaters. Both Fight Club and The Matrix really found their life on DVD, which yes. DVDs were just becoming a really huge thing in 1998 and 99. Everybody was getting DVD players for the first time. And for the first time, you could have a really perfectly clear, crisp copy of a movie in widescreen and see it on a really pretty good-sized television for the first time in home video history. And, and I, think it was, I think it really benefited those movies, the life that they found the, the, um, through the video. But just to show how limited their thinking was, um, they for adapted screenplay, talented Rissa Ripley, totally deserving. The Insider, totally deserving. Green Mile, eh. Election, totally deserving. And then the winner, Cider House Rules. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how you get the Cider House Rules for best screenplay in a year like that. I don't know how you don't give Election the win. Unless you're just giving the, the award to John Irving because you know that John Irving, people are familiar with John Irving and they've read his novels and they know he's a literary oh, yeah, guy. Yeah, and so yeah. they're thinking, you know, they're thinking, well, he's got to be a great writer because sure. you know, you know, like I know when, that there's that to it, but they don't, but that really. When you have, you, you, um, you don't know why the screenwriters would even nominate it. Well, in a, right? a lot of years, when you have, yeah, when you have a big star like that, like Bob Dylan nominated for best song, you know, they're always going to bow to that legend. Like, like this year, 1999, Phil Collins. <laughs> Phil Collins was nominated for the sappiest of the five songs, and he won. <laughs> he won for the sappiest song, and they have all these great songs from Magnolia and Toy Story that that. Uh, uh, Randy Newman wrote, I think, for Toy Story. And, uh, and then Phil Collins wins because he's the biggest name, right? <laughs> they want to see the rock star on stage win an Oscar. Oh, God, it's funny. It is funny. But, I, you know, I don't think Fincher has anything to worry about. Obviously, Fight Club's gone down in history and is far more memorable and resonating than, than American Beauty even, which was the oh, be-all, yeah. end-all of that year. You know? And one, one other thing that Fincher was really smart about, he really saw the DVD thing, what it, what it was capable of. He was one of the first directors to really do a huge, huge amount of hours and hours of special features, extraordinarily articulate director's commentaries, but when people just weren't doing that yet. And so that really helped people get dig into his movies in ways that people weren't able to dig into a lot of other movies that were being overlooked at the time. So that when you went back to reappra- reappraise them, you had a lot of meat that you could chew on. Right. I think, you know, and so that's really, really smart of him. He's always done that. His DVD editions, Blu-ray editions are, are fantastic. Absolutely, yeah. And, and he, it's one of the laments that they've sort of, that people aren't doing that anymore, that the DVDs are being phased out little by little. Mm. Um, you know, the, the line from Fight Club, I, I dare say that of all the great movies that were this year, and there are a lot of them, I, I, would, I would have to say the Fight Club is probably the most remembered, the most talked about. And people still say the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. I mean, that's still a, a quote that continues on through this day. Yeah, I will say there's not a lot of quotable lines from The Insider. You don't hear people yeah. quoting The Insider. They should. Too much. They should. They should. I know it. it's a great script. I really should, but it's just not that type of screenplay. But but then you've got American Beauty, Cider House Rules, Green Mile, The Insider, and The Sixth Sense for Best Picture in a year that gave you 
Fight Club and Magnolia and, you know, Boys Don't Cry. I mean, it was uh, just being John Malkovich, you know. Any of those would have been um, great Best Picture choices for them. But that's not how they work. They exist in a vacuum, and they tend to, especially back then, they tended to bow to the money more so than to the quality of the work, which is different now, because nowadays we don't really care about the box office so much. Um, Angelina Jolie won Best Supporting Actress for Girl Interrupted that year, which is um, pretty amazing. That was the beginning of Angelina Jolie's trajectory, and everybody. the only thing people could talk about after the Oscars was the fact that she had kissed her brother on the mouth and that she said, I'm so in love with my brother right now. Remember that? That was the yeah, thing that yeah. came out of the 1999 Oscars, believe it or not. She had a reputation for being a little bit offbeat about saying things about being bisexual and about her, you know, being into S&M and, and, you know, her sexuality and stuff like that. And then to behave like that, I think at the Golden Globes, not only did she kiss and hug her brother, but she dragged him up on stage with her to accept, just because she wanted him to see what it looked like from, from behind the podium there. And you know what it looked like to me when, and when I was watching the 1999 Golden Globes and the Oscars with my partner, this may be, I'm, this is almost a borderline slander, but I'll just go ahead and say it. This was like the peak of the, of the, of the house music years when everybody was going to raves and taking ecstasy. Yeah, I know. That's how you act when you're on ecstasy. Yeah, I thought when we they saw were. Angelina Jolie kissing her brother and saying how much she loved her brother, we, my partner and I looked at each other and said, you know, she's stripping her balls off. You you know what? I totally thought the same thing. <laughs> because you look at her eyes, and her eyes, there's no, her, pu- her pupils are like totally black. You know, her eyes are totally black because her pupils are dilated, which is a telltale sign, too, which is beautiful, makes a person look gorgeous. It's like that Belladonna look, you know? They used to take Belladonna in the Middle Ages to make your eyes look like that. Yeah. But it just looks to me like she was just really tripping hard that night, and it's good for her. I mean, if I'm wrong, I apologize, you know, I'm sorry about that. But if I, but if I am wrong, and she was able to achieve that ecstasy attitude without the, the pill, then that more power to her. Well, the know? rumor was that she was a heroin addict, so I don't know if it was heroin. Mm-hmm. But I, I also felt like I don't know her brother's history. I don't know who he is, or I mean, I don't know anything about him. I don't know if he wanted to be an actor or not. But I sort of felt like uh, she was sort of felt a little guilty for being the one who won something and who was you know emerging as the big star, and her brother wasn't, and that she kind of wanted to drag him up there and let him be part of her success. That's sort of what I. I mean, Mm -hmm. I agree about the ecstasy thing, too, but I also think that she was kind of going out of her way to bring him into it. And, of course, it it created such a scandal that it took years for the creepy to, to get taken off of him. I know. That's just so weird, though, that the the media will latch on to something like that and just repeat it and repeat it until it becomes almost like a fact of its own that they just that the the gossip is just invented out of nothing. Well, what if it would be today? Some kind of ancestral thing, you know, know, just because it's hot. Today with Twitter and everything, I wonder what it would be. It would turn into a meme, and you know, Mm. people. Well, it'd be like the way that Miley Cyrus is treated now. Right. Right. Mm. Well. Yeah. Only, only without the talent. <laughs> I mean, with a different type of talent. I mean, I'm not trying to compare Miley Cyrus and Angelina Jolie. It's yeah. totally different types of people. Right. But I, I this was I, I was really getting back into the Oscars that, um, in 1998 and 99. I was starting to be have my interest reignited and reinvigorated after the after after actually missing totally missing the shows in the mid-90s. I didn't even see who won and didn't know who won until months after. But this really was the beginning of me getting reinterested in the Oscars. So I can remember these nights really, really well watching these awards. 
Yeah. And I was about to start my website or I was busy starting it. So I definitely remember paying attention to that year. It was pretty much all downhill from here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So Magnolia was Paul Thomas Anderson's giant epic. And it really introduced him as a formidable filmmaker. I think he'd already been, he'd already made hard eight. And Boogie Nights, right? Didn't he? Or not. Uh, Boogie, didn't Boogie Nights come before Magnolia? So he was already had made a little bit of a splash. Right. And he used similar actors in Magnolia. He has um, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Julianne Moore from uh, both in Boogie Nights, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in, well, I don't know about in Heart Eight, but Philip Seymour Hoffman continues to work with him up to the, for the master he was in that. And you know he's great, Paul Thomas Anderson, about working with an ensemble like this. The story is beautifully told, I think. It just, unlike uh, Fight Club, it's actually written by Paul Thomas Anderson, Magnolia. So, and it, but it, but to me, it really is an, uh, a beautiful depiction of the hysteria. I'm just making this up, so for you know, please feel free to argue with me. But mm-hmm. the hysteria around the millennium, the change of the millennium, is what Magnolia feels like to me. The absolute epitome of that. Mm, yeah, I had spent a little bit of time in L.A. around this time, and so it did seem to me like, uh, and a little bit um, related to shortcuts, Altman shortcuts a little bit, as showing part of the way that L.A. was sort of coming apart of the seams, and so it looks so um, so bright and glamorous on the surface, but you just don't have to dig down very far to find a lot of just really strange people and personalities and and disturbing relationships between people. Yeah. In a way that it seemed like much more realistic to me, although I, I agree with you what you said before, that it, it's also exaggerated in the same way that American Beauty was exaggerated. But it just seems so much more grounded to me and so much more emotionally. I had so much more emotional attachment to the to the characters in Magnolia. Yeah. That movie, um, I had been in L.A. probably two years at that point, and it, it took me a good five years to really adjust to living here. And so I can't separate it from my newly minted L.A. experience and just sort of the feeling of disconnection that you have and isolation that, that you can have. Um, and it always struck me personally because it's named after a street that's just one over from where I live. So... And that's the connective road through the valley that sort of ties all of the stories together. So that's always the part of it that that appealed to me. And I had, a few years before, had had lost both of my parents, so I was still sort of dealing with that. And so that part of the story really hit me hard, too. Mm. Wow, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. We don't talk about that enough, I think, about how the personal things that we're going through can affect the, the way that we react to these movies. I know that a lot of my dissatisfaction with American Beauty was that all of my expat friends were saying, oh, let's go see what's being said about America. And I go to see it, and I'm just so disappointed that this is the message that all of my friends in Thailand are getting about America, and I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed by it because it it, it just seemed to me like that's not the America that I know. But, but Magnolia is in the, in, the same, in the same, in a same, in an equally dark way, but in a much more realistic way. Hmm. I really love Tom Cruise in Magnolia. I think he, to me, is, is always the standout every time I've watched it, which hasn't been that many times. It's pretty hard to get through, I think, for me. It's, it's a heavy movie, you know? It's heavy. It's like the master is heavy. You know, some of his films are just easy breezy, like uh, Punch Drunk Love. Um, you know, not easy breezy necessarily, but they're easier to watch repeatedly than a movie like Magnolia, which is intense, you know? All the mm-hmm. way through it, it's intense. 
How it didn't get a Best Picture nomination is am- amazing to me that they missed out on that. Yeah, could I kind of understand Fight Club? Like, that would just weird them out too much. But, uh, but Magnolia? Respect the cock. And tame the cunt. Tame it. Take it on headfirst with the skills that I will teach you at work and say, no, No. you will not control me. No, No. you will not take my soul. No, No. you will not win this game. Because it is a game, guys. You want to think it's not, huh? You want to think it's not, you go back to the schoolyard and you have that crush on big-titted Mary Jane. Respect the cock. You're embedding this thought. I am the one who's in charge. I am the one who says yes, no, now, here. It's universal, man. It is evolutional. It is anthropological. It is biological. It is animal. We are. Yeah, especially like Ryan mentioned, it's, it's connection to shortcuts, and, I, and and Paul Thomas Anderson had worked with Altman, and this is his most definitely his most Altman-esque uh, movie in terms of its ambition with the overlapping stories and multiple characters and, and ensemble. And you would think that alone would have been enough to put it over the edge. But I'm trying to think now how it was received when it came out. Was it a big deal or was it ignored? Uh, it was a big deal. It was a big deal because otherwise it wouldn't have gotten into the Oscar race. It was the movie that everybody kind of aligned themselves around, like um, the way that they do now with 12 Years a Slave. Magnolia was that movie back in the day. You know, mm-hmm. um, I remember that because our, people still talk about it even now. People talk about Magnolia being the one that really got shafted that year. Uh, it was a big deal that it didn't get a nomination and that those other movies did. It made as much money as The Insider did. They both made about 25 or $27 million. But for Magnolia was a pretty expensive movie. I'm looking at the production budget. And for 1999, for a movie like that to cost $37 million, I kind of wonder. I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson does not scrimp. He does not skimp on his, his, his movies. He's, he, he lavishes um, money on his, on his films. That's why it's great that he has a, a benefactor and a, a mentor now, you know, to... to finance movies like The Master. But, I mean, that probably may have helped um, darken the perception of Magnolia that it was a, it lost money. Ordinarily, a movie that is over three hours long, you need a stronger narrative through line to help carry people along so that they can ride the tracks of the film so they know where they can see in the distance where you're going, even if you're going in through tunnels and stuff. They can see a destination in the distance. With Magnolia, you have no idea where the thing is going. And for a three-hour, for a movie that's three hours plus, you kind of, I think, I, even for myself, the first couple of times I saw it, it was like I had a hard time getting a grip on it, uh, you know, gathering all the pieces together. Another thing, too, that we haven't mentioned about... Um, the Cider House rules versus 
American Beauty. This is coming on the heels of the year when Shakespeare in Love was up against Saving Private Ryan. So yeah. people had in their mind that they wanted to create a narrative about yes. Miramax versus DreamWorks. And so when Cider House Rules, nobody I don't think was expecting Cider House Rules to even get a nomination. It wasn't nominated for at the Golden Globes. The Golden Globes overlooked it almost entirely. It only got two nominations for maybe Best Supporting Actor or something. Well, that's why so Max was such a force to be reckoned with because they kept... Yeah. Get, remember when they got Chocolat in there for Best Picture and they got right. the reader yeah. in there? I mean, these guys are really good at that sort of last-minute finagling mm-hmm. and they're really good at finding the kind of movies Academy voters like, even if they have to bypass... The critics and the bloggers. And Miramax knows not only how to select the movies that are going to strike the right core with the Academy members, but it really knows how to sell them too, and it really knows how to handle the advertising and the the FYC ads and the and the, the whole tone of the FYC ads, like calling, uh, like saying about the King's Speech that uh, it's the movie that makes you feel right, as opposed to the one that makes you doesn't make you feel. Yes. And I think they did the same thing with Cider House Rules, made, uh, calling it an American classic. Just out of the blue, they were saying it was an American classic, which you know, totally false and fabricated. It wasn't a classic, and it, it never was and never will be. And But they were saying so, and by saying so over and over and over, people bought into that, right? And um, it's just, that, but that makes you sort of, it just makes me a little bit tired of the system. You know, I know that that, that is the way that the machinery works and everything, but when you can have a movie that comes out of the blue like the Cider House Rules, that people are surprised that it's even nominated, and suddenly it's the... It's the only rival to American Beauty. How does that even? How does that happen? Right. See what I'm saying? You know. It, I, I find mm. I'm myself disappointed with the critics more and more. Like mm. sort of, you know, dropping the ball that year. Yeah, really. you expect Oscar to drop the ball, but you want critics to uphold the bar of quality and to fight for the movies that are good and interesting and ahead of their time. Well, you know, another thing that was happening then, too, in 1999, you were going from a t- period in American history when, in the 1970s when you had 15 or 20 great American film critics, but in the ni- by 1999, you had 100 film critics. Right. And so when you and you can't depend on those hundred people the way you could depend on the twenty best critics. You have a lot. It dilutes the it dilutes the message of critics, and so many critics don't don't get it. We should talk about talented Mr. Ripley, that wonderful, yes. wonderful, wonderful film that features Matt Damon's best performance to date. It's Anthony Minghella's best film for sure. It was it was talk about totally misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for its time, I mean, it it um, it definitely was one of those that got poor reviews. It, it probably, to me, was one of the biggest surprises looking back for a movie that I know was good that just didn't get treated that well uh, by critics. Yeah, the Golden Globes nominated it for Best Picture, and I think it may have been nominated in five or six other categories too. I'll have to double check here real quick. But um, so the Golden Globes that year, I think, did a better job with their Best Picture nominees than the Oscars did. They nominated American Beauty. The Hurricane, The Insider, The Talented Mr. Ripley, and The End of the Affair, mm. which are very sophisticated, mature movies, I mean, especially compared to The Green Mile and Cider House Rules, which they ignored, you know. <laughs> so once in a while, the Golden Globes can really, you know, they have that separation, too, where they're not surrounded by the, all the noise, and they do, they do their own thing. Yeah, and the National Board of Review too is similar in that way. Like people, mm-hmm. you know, they 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 disres- they think they're they're just like a sleazy group of of whores or whatever. That's how they talk about <laughs> them. But um, you know, there's some. Well, they, they are probably that too. I mean, you can be a whore and you can be you know smart too. Sometimes their choices <laughs> are really good though. Yeah. You know, um, talented Mr. Ripley, Jude Law. How great is Jude Law in that movie? 
not only good, but I mean, the cast of that movie is just so great to look at. Gwyneth Paltrow and Kate Blanchett and Matt Damon and Jude Law. I mean, just four gorgeous people, right? Oh. In gorgeous locations, in filmed gorgeous gorgeously, locations. wearing gorgeous costumes. Just and gorgeous music. And, uh, and That's wonderful. the thing that struck me this time watching it. Um, you know, when I think of Tom Ripley, I always just kind of think of this creepy, crazy person. But the movie really takes the time to make the life that he's a, he's aspiring to be enormously appealing you can you can totally f- get the juice off of the, that he's getting off of it just that that luxury and and that that lifestyle that he wants to have for himself but have, have you guys seen purple noon uh, um, yes uh, so if you want to see the absolute faithful adaptation of of the talented Mr. Ripley, it's Purple Noon. But the last 45 minutes or half an hour of the talented Mr. Ripley that Minghella directed totally is not in the book at all. And it is not even made explicit in the book. And I was, I was pretty in tune and almost kind of sharply, my antennas were up, always looking for gay stuff in literature and knowing that Patri- Patricia Highsmith was a lesbian and she wrote the Ripley novels. When I read all five of the Ripley novels, I never saw a trace of any indication or hint that he was gay. Yeah. Not ever, you know, but so, but, but Mingela caught on to that. I mean, there is the obsession and there is the, the fascination and the, the fetishism that, 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 that Tom Ripley had for the Jude Law character that, but Mingela took that and ran with it and turned it into a totally full blown gay thing, which was fantastic to see on screen. Yeah. But I wonder if that didn't help, that didn't really hurt its Oscar chances. I think it might have. And I, I think that there was some pushback by the gay community also about it. Like uh, gay men are thugs and murderers, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, right. I remember that being a thing. It's it's always so hard when you're writing a, a you know a story about an oppressed minority, like you know the gay population mm-hmm. or, or women, or black you know African Americans. You're it's almost like you always have to speak for the whole group, and if what they're saying isn't positive and great, then then it's uh, it's it's detrimental. But I don't know. I never bought that because I never looked at that movie that way. To me, it was. Just a, a genius character, this character, mm-hmm. this talent, this Mr. Ripley. I've never read any of the books. I don't know anything about him, but in the movie, he's a guy, yes, gay, madly in love with Jude Law. And then when Jude Law confronts him in the boat about that, he kills him. And mm-hmm. Which we, is a crime of passion that you see that people, straight people do that all the time in movies. So why shouldn't yeah. it be allowed for gay people to do it too, right? Right. I'm sorry to, yeah. But what a sad character Tom Ripley is. Like, uh, he's yeah. sad. He's sad. And, and Philip Seymour Hoffman is so mean. <laughs> Such a what, what makes it so sad is that at the very end of the movie, when he finally has an opportunity to maybe do something that, that can, that, where he can actually be himself, by that time, he has burned all of its bridges behind him, and he's, he's absolutely ruined every chance that he possibly could have had for happiness. When, so when for happiness does finally present itself to him a chance for it at the end he's he's blown it right yeah because he missed because he he mishandled the his previous steps along the way it's so sad my my mom saw this movie before i did and she told me that i needed to go see it but she one thing she said was she was she really kind of almost had a crush on matt damon she had seen him in saving private ryan and and goodwill hunting and she liked him a lot she said to me i can remember just really clearly she said she said i think he's going to really hurt his career by playing, oh. by playing a gay, gay character. That, and I think, you know, that may, maybe there were people of a certain generation who maybe have that feeling that if you go that way, that you're, that's, a, that's a risky thing for a young actor to do so early in career that you don't want to get typecast as the gay guy, right? 
anyway, that's just my mother. I'm not saying, but she she does she she did know like she wasn't on top of the blind side in the King's Speech. So my you know moms do know things that the academy you know feels yeah. sometimes. Well, I mean, it works on the level of of him being a gay character who's in love with Dickie, but it also works on the level of. He wants so bad to be that life. He wants so bad to be that guy and be it as admired. And, and I just watched a movie. Oh, yeah, Fight Club. Fight mm. Club is similar in that, um, you know, uh, Edward Norton wants to be Tyler Durden and is Tyler Durden, part of him. Mm. And, you know, it's so much about the clothes and the, the you know, the, the, the way Dickie is just so unselfconscious. Like the bat scene. <laughs> I love the bath scene is so crazy mm. you know I, I can't remember is he taking a bath and he asks um if you can get in with him if he, right <laughs> if you can get in the bathtub with him and your law looks at him like you've lost your mind you've, yeah. lost, you've lost it dude no way you're getting in the bathtub with me uh, and dickie is a guy like tyler durden is a guy that that uh you know lots of people admire women women make fools of themselves to be with and you know men follow around like puppy dogs to try to just to bask in that electricity, you know, and Jude Law is so perfect in that part, just mm-hmm. so perfect. Uh, and poor, poor Mr. Ripley following him, like the scene in the record shop where they're listening to jazz or whatever. And, um, and well, another thing too, is I do think I've, I've, not, I've not thought about it a lot over the years. And I really do think that Tom Ripley is not necessarily totally gay. I think he's just bisexual. I think he's ambisexual. I think he has attraction to all kinds of things. And that's the way he's presented in the books, that he is just, he's not only a sociopath, but he absolutely is a hedonist. He just pursues whatever kind of pleasure he can find with whomever he can find. Yeah, and, and so I think people have trouble getting their heads around bisexuality more than they do even being gay. And he you know? would have been perfectly happy to be his, like, number one guy. Like he oh, yeah. Be, uh-huh. you know? Even just best, you know, best, best friend or whatever. Yeah, right. But he he just rejects him. He's like, "Ew, get away!" You know, and that uh, that sets him off. Great movie. I feel like watching it right now. Actually, I know. Me too. Uh, Another movie I just want to mention briefly. Uh, it uh, is so different from anything that David Lynch had ever done before, except for maybe Elephant Man, which is more of a normal type, you know, standard narrative. The Straight Story. I love this movie so much. I have it in my top five. And it's also the saddest story of the Oscars for 1999 mm. because, you know, Richard Farnsworth came out of retirement. He was really ill. He had bone cancer, and he was in a lot of pain. And David Lynch was able to, to convince him that they would take it slow. They would get a cinematographer, Freddie, Fran- Fred- Freddie Francis, who was also in his 70s or 80s. Those two old guys could buddy around. They could, take, they could do the movie at their own pace, and David Lynch would just follow them along, and they would do it in chronological order and everything. And just It was a slow-paced movie anyway because it all takes place right near cross-country on a lawnmower at five miles an hour, right? It's not like Fast and Furious or something, you know. But anyway, so Richard Farnsworth is nominated for an Oscar for this great movie. Really tender, sweet, lovable, warm, enchanting movie, I think. And he doesn't win the Oscar because Kevin Spacey does. Couldn't and then nine, Kevin nine, Spacey couldn't lose for that. Right, uh, of course. Yeah. yeah, I understand that. But then nine months after the Oscars, um, Richard Farnsworth commits suicide because oh, he's in so much on. pain from his bone cancer. Oh, God. So that's oh. the saddest story of the Oscars of 1999. Oh, God. Oh. 
what struck me watching that film again after all these years was I've always thought of it as sort of the odd man out in the David Lynch filmography. But watching it again, it is very much a David Lynch movie. If you subtract sort of the nightmarish surreal quality that all mm. of his movies have, it still it still has there's still an off kilterness to it. Um, and there's the and there's still quirky characters and it's still mm-hmm. and with the Angelo Badalamente score and everything and and it it I, I was I was surprised at how much it felt like a David Lynch movie mm-hmm. even though well, yeah. it didn't have his trademarks because you know the, the the Midwest is pretty is pretty bizarre and freaky on its own where you don't have to enhance it for it to to run across strange people in your travels across the Midwest and especially. Um, in a movie like this, where you where you have time to get to know people along the way, just randomly along the back roads, it's not even on the major highways and everything, and so it's it has a sort of the same sort of I think maybe abstraction that David Lynch has always goes for in all of his movies. It's, it's a simplified abstraction because the characters are simpler and, and the storyline is simpler, and it doesn't have it's easier to there's no mystery about what's happening. Right. In a lot of his movies, you don't even you don't know what's going on until oh, you get there. Yeah. It's a beautiful movie, and it's very, very much like. I bet you, if you asked David Lynch what movie is most like you, he would say The Straight Story. It's very much like his kind of simple way of, of viewing life. Uh, you know, a good cup of coffee, a nice tune, and the morning's great. You know, yeah, but very um, he's very meditative. Simple. In his own weird way, he's a total nut job in, in his a lot of his films. But the guy is just a very simple, down to earth dude. In a lot of ways. Um, I just briefly want to talk about something that, that I remember from that year now. Now my memory is coming back. Um, is that um, uh, Denzel Washington was really kind of shafted that year. Because I remember, this is one thing I remember that, that got me going, I think, with, with the kind of thing that I still talk about today, which is about black actors not winning Oscars. And at that time... Denzel Washington was headed for for the Oscar race in a big way with the hurricane, you know. And something happened along the way with that movie where it got derailed pretty easily by a rival campaign, dirty campaigning, for it being not true to life. And believe it or not, at the time, Kevin Spacey wasn't the favorite to win Best Actor. What he did was very similar to what... um, Roberto Benigni did. He started. I watched it happen. He started appearing on talk shows on, on uh, Jay Leno or whoever was was doing that show then, and just being funny and charming and doing his Jack Lemmon impression. And people fell in love with Kevin Spacey that year. But before that, it was Denzel Washington's to lose, and it was a really sad thing to watch the hurricane take such a fall, uh, starting out as such a you know an important role for him for Denzel Washington. I remember that too. I remember you do, seeing. Right? Uh, because uh, Denzel Washington, when he would go on talk shows, he would end up spending the entire segment making, uh, pleading the case or arguing the case about why it was okay to 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 uh, change some of the facts around in, in the story of Hurricane Carter's life because it was a movie. He ended up having to be defensive about his movie, where Kevin Spacey could go on and be charming. It put um, Denzel Washington on the defensive, and I thought it was really unfair the way that movie was treated. Because what other movie is put up is put under the microscope like that, where you examine the facts and and and, and try to tear it apart um, on. Uh, on a factual basis like that. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know what to say about it except for the fact that the year before, Saving Private Ryan, there was also a whisper campaign thing happening. So uh, you had a a Weinstein Co. movie in the mix. This was really... 
the year I think where dirty campaigning started to, it was the new normal of Oscar campaigns mm-hmm. and it, it, it coincided with the rise of the blogs because in the next year I would start Oscar watch and from then on the whole industry would it's going to be fun going through these years because I remember them so well having lived through them you know mm-hmm. day in and day out for the last 15 years but and really paying attention day in yeah. and day out right yeah. and watching mm-hmm. the dirty campaigning go down I can tell you that if I had been blogging at this time um people would have known about Richard Farnsworth and they would have known about Magnolia. And there is no way this looks like to me the last year that, that the Oscars were so in a vacuum um, compared yeah. to the movies it, that are outside it. I think once you got the bloggers in there and you start advocating, things changed. You can't get away with the tricks as much or the tricks become more yeah. refined, but it did seem really, it really stank, it really stunk to me that of all the movies to pick on for, 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 for its veracity, that you would pick the one movie that stars a black actor about a black character. Yeah. That that's girl. the one that you want to pick on. The Hurricane you know? Carter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was a big deal. And I, the one of the reasons why I felt so strongly about it is that um, Bob Dylan has a wonderful song called um, Hurricane about this very thing and they turned around and made a movie about that but Mm -hmm. if you're a bob dylan fan you very well know the song hurricane Mm -hmm. yeah it was a shame that happened and uh it was really just like that movie just plummeted i remember hearing when it first came out that denzel washington was was i didn't hear the word lock back then but it was like he was a shoe and it was like people were talking about this is going to be denzel washington's oscar and it's going to be the first time since uh sydney poitier that a black actor has won and it was already the talking they were talking it up like a big deal and all at once the bottom just fell out of that just fell it just like a trap door opened and that's one of the reasons why when it came to the halle berry year we're not we're two years off of it that's why I really kind of made a name for myself campaigning for Halle Berry and Denzel Washington that year. And I remember when they both won for for their movies, I screamed so loud I made poor Emma cry. I'll never forget that. Because like, <laughs> she was a little baby. She was traumatized. She was yeah, she just was a little toddler. And, um, but I couldn't believe that two black actors won on the same night. It was <laughs> stunning to watch. Uh, yeah. Um, and I think that night didn't didn't another black actor did it was Sidney Poitier didn't he win a, a life achievement award or something that night too so it was like really black night at the Oscars it was a great night I remember it so well and then they 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 put it away and no black actress has ever won since no, yeah, won. not for not for lead but but uh, Olivia um, Octavia Spencer oh That's yeah sure and Mel Monique yeah. but lead yeah. actress forget yeah. it yeah right. Wow. Um, what we do, we would, we want to, have we talked enough about, uh, Boys Don't Cry? I know people really love that movie and it's also one of my all time favorites that year too, because it's just so, it's such a small movie that came out of nowhere and it's a story I'd never heard before, a subject that Hollywood never ever approaches or tries to handle. And it was handled so delicately and so warmly and with such grace and elegance you know and and Hillary Swank just absolutely knocked it out of the park oh yeah that movie we've, we've talked quite a bit over the last several episodes about portrayals of of um of gay characters in films and this to me um Boys Don't Cry seems like it came at a turning point um in in sort of society when it it, it, it came out at the same time that the, um, the Matthew Shepard story, the kid that was killed um, mm-hmm. in the Midwest somewhere. And it just Colorado. seems like, yeah. And it, it seems like this movie was represents, represents sort of the turning point where suddenly society was saying that 
it's wrong to, to treat people like this. And that, and it was sort of the beginning of, of changes, I think, and, and, and changes in people's perceptions of LGBT people and characters. Kimberly Pierce, such a talented director, but it's really a shame. And I feel bad that she gets blamed for like what happened this year with Carrie. I think that a director like Kimberly Pierce has such talent, but it's not easy for any director or any filmmaker to get work and to get a project off the ground. So you sort of sometimes take what comes along. And I think she may have thought that she may have been able to do more with the remake of Carrie than she was able to do. Um, I was really, I, I was all, I was going to be determined to try to like the, the remake of Carrie as much as possible, but I just couldn't because it was so, it was so, it was so not different enough from the original. You know, it was so similar. It, it, sometimes to the point of being line for, for line, you know, the dialogue was identical, and it was almost in a way what uh, Gus Van Zandt was psycho. Sometimes shot for shot, and I was disappointed that 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 happened but i do feel sorry for a director like kimberly pierce who has such obvious talent who doesn't have more opportunities to do more that she has to accept projects like that you know carrie seemed like a bad idea from conception but i was rooting for it because of her yeah exactly that's what i mean thanks for saying it in a much more simpler and clear clear <laughs> way <laughs> she was great i mean i don't think people had ever seen anything like hillary swank in that in that role. I mean, really, the acting-wise, it was just like a, one of the freakiest things. But it was also cool to see such a tiny, tiny movie get recognized. I mean, at the time, no, everybody was saying there was no chance in hell she could win. The movie's too small. And, you know, pe mm -hmm. enough people kept talking about it, and she really did change. It was partly the political thing, but it was also just her plain performance. I mean, I, it's one of those Daniel Day-Lewis and Lincoln kind of moments, you know. Where oh, yeah, you exactly. A good comparison. Chloe Sevigny, how do you pronounce her last name? Yeah. Yeah, she's fantastic, too. She wanted to play um, Brendan Tina, but Kimberly Pierce told her that, I'm sorry, you cannot pass as a guy. Right. <laughs> it's not going to be convincing. We're not going to be able to convince people, and you won't be able to be convincing to the other characters in the movie that you're a guy. It's yeah. not going to work for you. But she, what I love about that performance is when she does discover that, that Brandon Tina is a, is a girl underneath, it doesn't matter to her. You know, she still loves her. She loves the person. Yeah, she loves the person. Yeah, I know. What a great movie. I mean, I, I find it too hard for me to revisit that movie, though. It's one of those mm. that's like it's just too sad. I love to see her performance. I think she's amazing, but it makes me sad, horribly sad. Oh, yeah. So I avoid it. I tend to avoid re-watching movies like that that are just, oh, kill me now, you know? I think it would be harder for me to watch if it weren't, like I was saying before, sort of a representative of a, of a change in society. That's a, It's a positive change, and so yeah. I associate it with that. And so as, as unpleasant and as sad as it is, it, it, it's, it's redeemed by that to me. Yeah, I just remember it breaking my heart so bad, you know. I just, I just don't think I can go there. But um, I know that you two really you like flirting with disaster and say that it's your favorite David or Russell film. I think my favorite David or Russell film is Three Kings. I really think it's just a crackerjack film. I I, I love the style. Uh, it's it's just frenetic enough without being over the top. It's uh, exciting visually. The acting is great. The story's fantastic. It just all came together for me. Um, I just wanted to throw that in there since we it's one of the movies of 1999 that was pretty much overlooked by in the awards circuit. But um, I think it's 
It's David Russell's um, best movie for me, as far as I'm concerned. So go ahead. It's my it. favorite too. Don't lump me in with uh, flirting with disaster. Oh, okay, okay. So I thought um, I. I, I uh, it, no, flirting with it, disaster is by far my favorite, so you can feel free to lump me in. Okay. No, yeah, yeah. I just, I just, Three Kings is great, but it's a sausage fest, and you know I can only take so much of that. The, the, oh, yeah, okay, I can see that. The I dicks think, you know, I, into at that the time, room, I you know. wasn't really thinking on those terms. I'm, oh, I'm, I know. You've really. You know. I don't blame you. I mean, you know, who would? Because I, I'm a, I'm a sausage kind of guy. I'm a sausage. You're a sausage guy. guy. You don't mind the sausage <laughs> fest, but for me, it bores me after a while. Yeah, I love the uh, women in the movies, but. Go ahead, talk about it. I'm not going to rain on your. It's movie no, movie that I think of with each new movie that he comes out, and I and I, and I regret what has happened to his um, his interesting voice. You know, I think he, I think uh, I think you can I, I think you can say that his early films maybe were flawed in some ways, or they were I don't know. I, cut this part out. I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I know what I'll, I go. I don't know what you're saying either. But I'll, I'll try to think of something else to attach to it. I'm just going to say that I, after Three Kings, I think that David O. Russell really decided he wanted to have an Oscar, and he started to try to make movies that would appeal to the Oscars. And he's done a great, great job figuring out what, how to tap into that. He's tapped into ways to make uh, his actors win Oscars, and I think that in just a couple of years he's going to start. He's going to be on the verge of winning one himself. And I think that in order, in his pursuit of Oscars, he's given up his voice. He made I Heart Huckabees after this, which was still pretty much out there. But I think he mm-hmm. got clobbered on that one pretty badly critically. And I think you're right that since then, he's been much... And, I, and his career was almost taken away from him because he had the reputation, especially after Huckabees, of being a difficult director because that video went around of him reaming out uh, What's-Her-Name. And I, th- I think oh, yeah, that... yeah, Lily Tomlin. Yeah, the flames of his career were flickering pretty badly there yeah. for a while. And I we think that he... He he has has um, I've lost my train of thought again. Mm, he's he's realigned himself in a wrong direction, I think. And we said the same thing about Tarantino last week or the week before about how he we really I really thought he was taking a, a great step forward in his career when he made Jackie Brown, and I was just really looking forward to what he would do next. But when Jackie Brown didn't strike gold the way he wanted it to with audiences or critics or the Oscars, he went back to his old formula that he knows works and fell into his rut that he's been in the same rut now for the past Mm -hmm. 15 years. Russell, though, abandoned his formula. Tarantino is sort of reinforcing what his strengths were, whereas Russell seemed to abandon everything that was interesting about him to begin with mm-hmm. for his last mm-hmm. his last couple of pictures. It's just the the distinctiveness of them has has been has been completely ironed out, and it's regrettable. Oh, yeah. It is true, but we'll just wait and see what happens with American Hustle. I'm still I'm I'm hold, holding out hopes that it could be just really. I hope it's great. I hope it's fantastic. I mean, I it just, could be. Don't yeah. you think from the from the trailers it looks great? I don't know. It's hard for me to put my mind around the guy who made Flirting with Disaster, who had also made Silver Linings Playbook. I mean, fine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a charming movie. It's sweet. There's, it's, there's nothing really inherently wrong with it. Um, but those characters seem so dumb compared to the characters he wrote in, in Flirting with Disaster, which are so funny and smart. And he doesn't sell any of them out. Like Patricia Arquette, Taya Leone, Lily Tomlin, mm-hmm. Alan Alda, Ben Stiller... Um, the two FBI guys, Josh Brolin is one of them. These are great, original, breathtaking characters, you know. Every mm-hmm. character in Silver Lines Playbook was like a cliche, you know. Same with the fighter. And the mm-hmm. fighter, oh, the fighter. You know, I, I, I'm going to be optimistic about it, too. I think that um, maybe since he's got his mojo back now and, and you know, I, he, he's gotten his career back and he's established that he can make 
money and that he can make movies that people like and will be nominated for awards that he can revert to his his earlier a little more challenging form a little bit but we'll see just briefly i mean talk about eccentric and strange and really way too out there really for the academy to really get their mind around i think i think that they might have recognized that this was some kind of brilliance that that was beyond them, but they didn't know what to do with the, the the Oscars, I mean. Well, sometimes when a brilliant mind enters the Oscar race in any way, or a film year, you just know it's only a matter of time before they win something, and that was what happened the year that Charlie Kaufman wrote Being John Malkovich, and people got this, who is this Charlie Kaufman person? I mean, he's not Tarantino, he doesn't really want to direct, hmm. although I think he does try to direct later, but... Um, his screenwriting was so wholly original, he turned it into an art in and of itself, as in it's not just a function of the director telling a story. It is its own work of art, and the director tries to pay homage to the screenplay, you know? Mm. So you knew it was only a matter of time before... Uh, well, when did he win? Did he win that year? No, he doesn't win that year. He, wins he won for, for an adaptation, didn't he? I think he won for the other one, the Jim Carrey one, right? Oh, Eternal Sunshine. Yeah, let's see. That was winning everything, but people got yes, so, you're right. People were so behind him for after they saw this movie being John Malkovich. Because God, I mean, you take 1999, you take inventive movies already, like Fight Club and Magnolia, um, just on their own, like nothing you know you've ever seen before. They're totally nuts, and then you have you know the, the bar is set higher with with being john malkovich which first of all who would have ever thought that's what i love about charlie kaufman is oh my god like he to him there are no rules in writing mm-hmm. all there is is you tell a good story but who's to say you can't go inside the head of an actor and who's to say that that actor can't be john malkovich and how's how's great that john malkovich would just go with it yeah would say yeah, okay sure why that sounds like a great idea let's just do it oh yeah because he was always open to stuff like that you know and he was one of the first to really upend the whole pop culture thing about uh which now a lot of filmmakers do this they they mm-hmm. definitely toy with pop culture in a way but filmmakers haven't that, uh, really done that before him well and how about how the character that he plays as himself is not a very likable person he's willing to let himself look like a complete ass and to to risk people mistaking that for actually being him it's oh, a pretty egoless uh un vain performance mm-hmm, absolutely because i'm sure i mean that i think i even have read that john malkovich said that it wasn't really it's just a part of how he can be sometimes but he 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 had a blast during filming because he just got to be an asshole every day oh my god it's the most <laughs> genius idea who would have ever thought that charlie kaufman has won three bafta awards he's won for being john malkovich for adaptation and for eternal, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind so every time he writes a screenplay he gets a bafta award basically yeah and he wrote this and spike jones directed and then they were reunited again for um uh, adaptation and a different guy directed Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which uh-huh. is his highest, his most critically acclaimed film to date. Mm-hmm. So. Gondry, Michael Gondry. Michael Gondry directed it, but you never think of those movies and think about Michelle it. Michelle Gondry. I don't, I, it's it's not surprising to me that that Spike Jones ended up not working with Charlie Kaufman again. Besides the fact that Charlie Kaufman doesn't write anymore, but um, he is working on something about bloggers right now, which I hope he does. But. Um, uh, you know, you can't get out from under Charlie Kaufman. I mean, if you make a Charlie Kaufman movie, it's about Charlie Kaufman. It's not about you, the director. But and he, but he writes great roles for his characters too, because they end up getting uh, nominated. They, they're rich. They're rich enough roles they are nominated. Like uh, 
being John Malkovich, uh, didn't it get a nomination for Cameron Diaz and for Catherine Keener? Or am I thinking of the Golden Globes, maybe? Oh, Golden Globes, look. maybe. I think they both got nominated, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, I hate this idea of, you know, win an Oscar, career ruined. It, you know, it always bothers me, but, but I think there's something to it in terms of if you win an Oscar, it's sort of like the pinnacle, you know, it, mm -hmm. in, in Hollywood. And you maybe don't feel like you need to um, have anything to struggle for or work towards or prove yourself anymore. But, God, there's so many writers and directors and, and actors who they win the Oscar and that's that, you know. And, and well, I, I, I hope I, that Charlie Kaufman doesn't turn out to be that guy. You know? I think for some people, too, maybe especially for actresses and actors, once when you win the Oscar and your, your, your salary can go up, you cash in. A lot of people, there's, that's a, that's a, that would be a pretty difficult urge to resist to cash in on your oscar and so you take movies that that are offered that you know maybe would you would not have taken before you won your oscar because you'd be worried about your, your reputation but you don't have to worry yes. about your reputation anymore you're already an oscar winner right, right. so now you can just do anything you want and you become robert de niro yeah so now <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Robert. <laughs> Another thing I wanted to say about them. Because um, um, he just likes the paycheck. He just likes to keep working. It doesn't, you know, you can tell the ones where the, the, the winning the Oscar didn't really mean that much. Election, which we should talk about. And before we do, let me just say we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. We know, yes, Toy Story 2 came out. Yes, we know Pixar fans. We heard it was a great movie, blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> Arlington Road. Um, I, is one of my weird guilty pleasures, I have to admit. Like, it, I think it got panned when it first came out. If you watch it now, take my advice and actually watch the movie. You will recognize strains of tension of today with our weird terrorists and um, weird scary right-wingers and racists. And, you know, watch that movie. It's, it's really got a lot to say about the kind of weird times we're living in now. Even though it was made in 1999, it was before 9-11. It was... It was born out of Timothy McVeigh when terrorists were the boy next door and they weren't, mm -hmm. you know, overseas or whatever. They weren't from the Middle East. Um, and Tim, Tim Robbins has a conscience about things like that. He's not going to make a movie like that if he doesn't feel like it's got some depth, right? Oh, yeah. It's really mm -hmm. worth seeing. Very good. Very well done. Really weird movie. Um, okay, so just we should talk about the fact that, that Alexander Payne, who is now coming into the Oscar race with... Nebraska. Uh, the, yeah, the brilliant Nebraska. They he he. Back then, they were known as Payne and Taylor because he worked with Jim Taylor a lot, and it was kind of they shared credit. And that is certainly how election came to be. Um, the new one, Nebraska, they didn't actually write that screenplay, but they certainly wrote election, and it was how Reese Witherspoon got her start as an actress, and she plays a character called Tracy Flick, who is totally in the you know collective consciousness now everybody says oh it's a tracy flick you know people know what you're mm -hmm. talking about and poor matthew broderick as the teacher <laughs> but what a great movie i mean only in a year like 1999 could you talk about every other movie before finally getting to election uh and all these great movies that we've been talking about but in a different year it would have stood out as one of the strongest films of that year you know did it win for best screenplay i hope any from anyone did no anyone it didn't because cider house rules won. Oh my god <laughs> i want to puke that's so sick. But Alexander Payne has made, won two Oscars since then. He won uh -huh. for Sideways and yeah. he won for uh -huh. Descendants. Which... You know what would make a neat double bill is Nebraska and The Straight Story. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. You've been listening to episode 52 of Oscar Podcast, part two.